Greetings, dear listeners. It's me and Shadi again this week, talking about something that's been very much on our mind recently, the nature of change. Our Q&A last week, as well as Shadi's Monday note this week, get at some of these issues in different ways. It was a real pleasure to get to unpack this stuff further, together, in real time. We hope you enjoy the conversation. If you're not yet a paying subscriber, please consider becoming one at wisdomofcrowds.live slash subscribe. You'll get to participate in our subscriber-only Q&A discussions, and you'll get access to bonus material, like the tail end of this discussion, where we tackle the question of whether more democracy might mean a slower pace of change. On to the show. Can I start with a random thought that may or may not be appropriate for the podcast? I mean, I think that's that's the best way to start, especially with inappropriate things. <laughs> okay, so this is literally what I was just thinking about mm-hmm. about half an hour ago. Yeah. I was thinking to myself, it must be really hard to have a generic white person name. Like not it's, I it's mean, good just for to me. Use an ex- I don't I don't <laughs> I'm a generic white person with a with a strange Slavic name, yeah. Yeah, you have the perfect combo. Um, but, you know, I'm thinking about people. I don't want to name names. I mean, but like, let's say your name was... Joe Scarborough, <laughs> something like that. Like Noah Smith or something. Yeah, Noah Smith. Yeah, sure. <laughs> For example. Oh. <laughs> so I'm just wondering, like that, I, 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 it, like all jokes aside, I do wonder how that affects them. In life, especially if you're a writer and you want to be remembered and you want people to take note of your name for future reference. Um, I also do worry about people who have the same name as other famous people. So, for example, if your name is Jeffrey Sachs, yeah, then you're you're just going to be lumped in with the famous Jeffrey Sachs. Yeah. yeah. And then if people Google you, they're going to be confused. Wait, is this person the economist Jeffrey Sachs, who has also, as it turns out, terrible views on the Middle East and Syria in particular? He was sort of like an asset apologist for some reason. I had no of, idea. Really? Yeah, yeah. Hmm. It was it was sad to see many years ago. But I you know, I um I on the other hand, and like you as well, I have a name that is, for better or worse, utterly distinctive. Yeah. I I don't know of any other I'm sure there are, and I've seen people like sort of call themselves Shadi Hamid on Twitter. I don't know if they're just trolling me, <laughs> but as far as I can tell, there aren't really many Shadi Hamids in the world. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's good. I mean, the nice thing about Twitter, though, right, is that that uh, Noah Smith is now no opinion. I, I often forget that he's Noah Smith, you know, and you just yeah, come and- up with a clever handle and then and then you're gold. And you're known as that. And it's also kind of funny. I don't know if it's meant to be a pun that his Twitter handle is no opinion. No, of course it is. I Come mean, on. Of course it's meant that, to be a pun. So he's trying to say that he has no opinion on right. things? Right. And he's okay, a liberal. Well, that's clever. You know, he's, he's a liberal, so it's value neutral, everything. It's all very clever. It's many <laughs> layers deep. Wow, wow. Yeah. Okay, well, that was a nice little, um, what is it called? Palate cleanser, throat clearer. Throat clearer. Um, Demir, what's on your, <laughs> what's on your mind? Because, I mean, um, 
I think you've, as far as I can tell from our text message thread, you've been concerned about climate. And I've been a little bit nervous about that because I don't like to talk about the climate and I don't really have strong opinions on it. But maybe you can con persuade me otherwise. Um, um, if you think it's important and you think that our dear listeners should pay close attention to something in particular. I, 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 I'm not, I, don't, I think you and I shared... Um... I don't know, maybe our priors are different on why uh, and how we approach this. I think maybe teasing that out might be the what we try and do in this episode. Um, I, my, my thoughts on climate have always been that, that, that um, from first principles, they sort of, I assert that, that it's just going to be impossible to... Um, to come up with with the kind of consensus uh, that's required to truly tackle a global global problem like climate change, the extent to which uh, it really is, you know, even even a civilization ending uh, thing like climate change would be very difficult to um, to get the kind of consensus for that, you know, the uh, the commentariat and the the scientists tell us would be necessary to avert it. Um, and and you know, I mean. At the same time, there's just that that kind of what I think that breeds a kind of uh, resignment on my part that then informs how I consume this this uh, all the all the writing on climate, which is oh my god, the world is ending, and I'm like, well, shrug, you know, the world is ending. There's not much we can do about it. We better figure out some other way to do it because you know, getting the world to net zero consumption is not going to work. And this week has just seemed to me. You know, insane heat wave in England. Um, I don't know, breaking all sorts of of records for uh, for what's happening there. Uh, Democratic Senator Joe Manchin saying that because of the uh, the economy and because of uh, inflation, he is not willing to sign on for any climate policies, um, leading basically to uh, what looks like the death of of any ambition that the Biden administration had to to do this. Um, and then sort of, you know, skyrocketing, uh, uh, gas prices happening everywhere. And, you know, I, I just was looking, there's a, a, a poll, I think Biden's down to, was he under 30%, but the, the real headliner was like Hispanics, 19%, uh, uh, in favor of Biden. Uh, wait, it's, it's yeah, that low. 19%. That was the latest one. Uh, that is incredible. Really, really just like off the charts. But also, you know, small business owners just really and and the question being then is, uh, um, I think it was Mayor Pete said something along the lines of, you know, uh, high gas prices is great because it pushes people into electric vehicles. But the politics is just not going to work out that way, right? I mean, it, it's it's uh, high gas prices are are killing the Democrats right now. I I would assume that that's at least a very large part of of the broad disaffection of why people are so angry at this point. So, you know, yeah. I, you know, my, my thoughts on climate are, are, are I guess, um, I don't know. How do you approach it? Do you think, do you, do you share my, my sort of deep pessimism about the possibility of a kind of collective political solution to something that they tell us is this big? Yeah, yeah. Hmm. Okay. Well, I guess first thing um, is 
I think gas prices, then I'll get to like the bigger question that you posed because um, I think it's worth working out because um, I'm in the process of working it out. I think that it's important to have an opinion on the climate and it's worth developing that in real time so listeners can see my thought process. I do think that it's not just about gas prices. I think gas prices are a proxy for disaffection. And human beings are complicated, so they're not primarily economic beings. In that sense, I'm very much an anti-Marxist. I don't believe that that's what fundamentally drives people. But I do think that, um, you know, when you're at the pump and you see, um, I guess that's what people call it when they go to the gas station. I don't yes. drive really. Yes. <laughs> but they go they go to the pump and they see, oh my God, wow, it's uh, it's you know, it's double what it was whenever a couple of years ago. A couple of months and ago. Then, no joke. I I do drive. I, I, I go to the pump and talk to Joe Everyman. It's it's a lot. But yeah, go on. Okay, yeah, yeah. So a very sudden increase in a short period of time. And that I think triggers people to think about the broader environment that they're in, that something doesn't quite feel right. There's something unsettling about such a rapid increase in prices. So there is obviously, it hurts people um, economically, but then there's this bigger thing that there's a confluence of events under Biden that seem to suggest the country is going in a very negative direction. And gas prices are part of that larger narrative. And that narrative seeps into people's perception, even if they want to resist it. I mean, that's sort of how I would think about how this actually works in practice in people's lives. Yeah. Um, and that's, a, and that's a, a very dangerous thing, obviously, for Democrats, because um, if you feel that something is fundamentally wrong, and you are someone who is generally sympathetic to the Democrats or Biden, but you can't shake that feeling that something's off. I mean, that is, um, that's not going to turn out well um, at the polls in terms of turnout, enthusiasm, and so forth. Um, on the bigger question of how I think about climate, also, I should note, I just found out recently that, um, so I was I was home over the weekend, um, uh, with the parents and brother in Pennsylvania. And my dad, as part of his daily routine, he likes to watch um, ABC News, World News Tonight mm. with David Muir. Muir. I, I don't know how to pronounce his last name, but I've it's never even heard of him. Yeah. 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 I mean, he's he's like the um, Peter Jennings. He's like the new Peter Peter Jennings. Yeah, yeah exactly. So um, I, so I was watching with him and they were talking about the heat wave in Europe and apparently, this is crazy to me that less than 1% of Europeans um, have AC. Yeah. Yeah. Something like that. No, I think I, that was actually what was said explicitly. I, I would direct you and our listeners to Matt Iglesias' feed for the last week. He's on vacation with friends and family <laughs> in Europe, and it's just savage. Savage, the sa savage tweeting, because if you might remember, and maybe our, our listeners do as well, he, he's been on this kick about how underdeveloped and backwards Europe is, I mean, from like washing machines on. So he's just developed that into a, a very amusing, <laughs> a very amusing yeah, uh, okay. series. Anyway. So I, I don't know if he's trolling or not. And all I know is that he, be, like, he had this somewhat um, notorious tweet about how Europeans don't have dryers. So I definitely remember the dryer. Yeah, thing. yeah, yeah. That's it. 
And that's like evidence of backwardness. So I mean, he's developed I, which, it now. I mean, it's it's really a developed thread now. Like, <laughs> check in on him this week. It's been it's been wait, really is, spectacular. But is he being serious or is he doing some kind of performance art? I mean, it's it's a bit of both, right? I mean, it, it's it's sort of. I think he's doing a version of what you and I talk about sometimes, which is, you know, people shit on America, but America is great in ways that people don't appreciate. And Americans love to, you know, hump Europe, but in fact, Europe has a lot of downsides. So he's taken that as I think his his jumping off point to point out that in fact, which is true, you know, I mean, if you look at, um, you know, the, the, the Europe is undoubtedly very rich, uh, but um, on per capita GDP, uh, and I, you know, it's, it's the, the figures are, are, are sort of staggering. I mean, like Mississippi is just behind Italy, if I'm not mistaken, or something like that. And some, some set of figures that I looked up, uh, a couple of weeks ago, you know, I mean, and that's our poorest state is, is, you know, uh, like really ahead of many other European countries. Um, wow. so, yeah. you know, and, and I mean, the the trade off is of course you have like an incredibly capacious and generous welfare state in a lot of these um, places, but the the you know um, people are just not as personally wealthy, so they don't end up investing in things like dryers and uh, and air conditioning. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I suppose it's a reminder, um, and um, this always comes up when I go home and talk to my. Uh, my dad in particular likes the, this idea that life is about trade-offs. He probably just got it from me or maybe from the podcast because I sort of, I think, talk about that a lot, even if I don't fully realize it. Anyway, that is, I think, life in life and politics and in really any realm of existence, I think that you can make an argument that good things don't necessarily go together. To get more of a good thing, you might have to get also more of a bad thing right and to expect more from life is a little bit unfair um because um there's a certain justice a, a, a sort of cosmic justice that undergirds the universe and it's almost as if god wants to remind us like you can't have your cake and eat it right don't ask for too much. Right. Like if you get that generous welfare system in um, in, Ital in Italy or Spain, well, um, then, sorry, you're not going to have a dryer for your clothes. And that there, there is a sort of justice in that, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, right. It, I, I, I mean, that's, that's an endless, endless rabbit hole that, you know, I mean, that you can dive into, you know, given, given – uh, how despite all of that, uh, you know, we have great health care, but in fact, we don't like our outcomes aren't better, uh, but we wait less. You know, I whatever you can you can slice and dice this thousands of ways. Yeah. But yeah, um, I, yeah, true. yeah. I, look, I'll just say from my standpoint, I have always appreciated that if you need to see a specialist in the U.S. and you have insurance, you can see a specialist extremely quickly. But I guess other people don't value that as much. No, but I, mean, I have heard from. Yeah, no, I mean, I when I had my wisdom teeth out, that was just agony. And, you know, it unfortunately, it hit me like on a Friday night. And I couldn't get a specialist until Monday, but I saw Monday and, and Tuesday, I had the tooth out, you know, and you hear stories, yeah, it's not like life threatening or anything, it just blows to have that kind of pain. And oftentimes, again, anecdotally, uh, at times in Europe, you, you wait for that sort of thing. And that's not even a serious life threatening thing, right? So yeah, no, absolutely. you don't even have to go to Europe for that. I mean, um, our neighbors to the north, and we have some Canadian relatives, and they they often complain about the long wait times and having just 
uh, been to Canada recently, briefly, I have to say there are things about Canada where I'm like, whoa, Canada is not as advanced as I thought it was. Right, right. But we don't have to get into that. On the bigger question, <laughs> on the bigger question of climate change, I guess. So, um, I don't know. I mean, I've had a lot of trouble feeling feeling a sense of urgency. I mean, I, I can read I can read the studies or be aware of them. And I know what people say, that there should be a sense of urgency. I just can't seem to manage it as me, Shaddy. Yeah. And I, I suppose there's interesting reasons for that, perhaps. Um, and I think that part of it is I have a certain kind of um, faith that humans are innovative and that the more our backs are are to the wall and the more dangerous things get, we find ways at the very last moment to turn things around mm. or to at least prevent the disaster from actually happening at that very last moment. Um, and I'm also reminded, I think, of um, – I forget what – I think it was this Malthusian thing yeah. uh, or the pop – um, I can't remember what mouth, if that's a, it's probably yeah. a, a person, Tom, Malthus. Yeah, Thomas, Thomas Malthus. Yeah, like. Oh, yeah. Okay, yeah. Thomas Malthus. The yeah. economist back then. Yeah, so what I vaguely recall is that there's this idea that um, that if population keeps on increasing, the, the world is going to be destroyed because, um because the uh, the environment won't be able to sustain it and there won't be enough food for everyone. Um, so there was this idea that you don't actually want your population to increase all that much. Right. But I think what we're finding out is, especially from an American standpoint, that it's better to have more people, and not, not just more people, but a lot more people. And I'm generally a proponent of Matt Iglesias's um, proposal of having 1 billion Americans, I am 100% in support of maybe not that exact number, but over time, we dramatically increase our population through immigration. Um, I suppose you could also do it through raising fertility rates, but that's very challenging to do through government gonna, policy. You're going to do your part when you have a family? Five kids. <laughs> you know what's funny? Um, this is not a joke. I, I I was reading about this. Elon Musk actually has made precisely that argument. He has ten kids. Yeah, and he has said that the reason he has ten kids is because he feels that he has to do his part because um, underpopulation and decline uh, and that kind of de the decline that goes along with it is one of his biggest concerns and biggest fears about the future of the human race so if he can pump out <laughs> so um, to speak <laughs> eight more you know eight more kids than the norm so be it also as it turns out his father i believe also has a similar philosophy his father is a bit uh, a bit weird and i think he's actually been accused of some pretty uh, I, I don't know, but he's apparently estranged from his father, but mm -hmm. his father likes having a lot of kids, too. Um, likes so having or making. Family. I mean, because <laughs> because here's the thing, right? Like the other person, I, I don't I haven't been following the, the Musk thing, but I saw some sort of, you know, snide remarks. Did he, are the, these are affairs that he had and he just has like like unclaimed children because, I mean, you know, I haven't heard Boris Johnson make that claim, but it's a great one. You should just be like <laughs> Boris has. <laughs> 
like six illegitimate children around the world or something. And you should be like, yeah, "Yeah, I'm doing it for humanity because I believe that we need to have more kids. But in fact, they're all out of wedlock. Anyway, go on. But it is amazing that Elon Musk actually seems to be sincere about this. Like he's not trolling. He doesn't seem to be joking. Mm -hmm. He seems to feel strongly about this. Anyway, that's a little bit of a digression. But just to say that there are things that we feared in the past that would be the end of humankind and they didn't turn out to be the end of humankind. And I think there has to be a certain level of intellectual humility and modesty about what we can know that we think that now as moderns, that in the 21st century, we now have all the answers about how certain things work. But, you know, we could be pleasantly surprised in the future, including on this particular topic. Um, And um, yeah. So that's interesting. Like, so you you have a... You always have like a, a messianic faith that this will work itself out. You don't have necessarily um, a pessimism. Right? It's a, you, you have an optimistic sort of approach to it rather than my pessimism, which is, I mean, I think we end up in the same place. I, you know, the, the bet has to be that we'll figure out a a uh, a solution to this that doesn't involve, um, you know, the kind of political change that um, that comes from international cooperation. I think we talked about this a little bit. Uh, was it with Ross Douthat when we had him on and, you know, uh, about the, the idea that if aliens come, uh, to the planet, we're just all going to war. You know, I, I think that's right. I really, I still think that's right. And, you know, so, so no amount of global catastrophe, uh, will do this. You know, look, the only, the only sort of thing I'd say about Thomas Malthus and Malthusianism is, and, and even your sort of, I don't know, uh, messianic yeah sure kind of optimism uh about clarify afterwards i don't think i'm an optimist but we'll get there yeah i i mean on 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 this you know the 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 thing that that malthus didn't see is that um you know he was extrapolating from the long stretch of human history um and and the 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 full impact and the miracle of um the capitalist mode of production, uh, the Industrial Revolution, all of these things hadn't yet been felt. Um, and it is fascinating how Malthusianism is sticky as an idea, keeps coming back. This kind of uh, different kind of, you know, end times stuff is clearly, even in the secular mode, really appealing to people. It makes them feel, give them some sort of meaning and pushes them to... to structure their lives around, you know, saving the world or, you know, the world is ending. And I don't know, I think it imbues, it, it motivates people in, in interesting ways throughout history. Um, but, you know, the, the, the sort of uh, call it the smart Malthusian uh, argument um, or the nuanced Malthusian argument, I wouldn't call it smart, uh, is that, you know, as you were saying earlier, everything's a trade-off and, um Every innovation that is made leads to a, a a different set of costs down the line. So you know yeah. the the big twentieth century um, breakthrough in uh, in in farming. You know the green revolution that that really exploded and 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 allowed uh, a struggling rest of world to actually be fed um, has led to environmental degradation. And sure, you know I, if you have, I guess a belief that. Something in history changed uh, fundamentally with uh, the advent of capitalism. Let's just call it that, um, and all the incentives that uh, it brings to unlock human ingenuity to 
you know, get us out of these binds over and over again, um, that there's a, uh, there's a kind of, uh, maybe a, a logic to this that, you know, we'll, we'll, you know, it's kind of like pushing down a bubble here and it pops up elsewhere. And so we push down this climate change thing and then, you know, a bubble will rise elsewhere, but we'll deal with that with human ingenuity down the line and, and it'll all work out because it's sort of limitless. I guess the 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 climate alarmist slash Malthusian slash pessimist thing is that we've been playing this game for a while um, with human ingenuity, uh, and that um, we're hitting some really hard limits that are resource based limits, you know, uh, towards um, uh, just getting out of this, like. A lot of the the sort of innovations, I think, to use Tyler Cowen's language on this is like we, we've been picking the low hanging fruits on a lot of this stuff, and um, it's just getting harder and harder to to find a way out. And and it's it's interesting listening to you is that again you'll you'll correct me now, but um, how much it's a faith proposition one way or the other. Um, there's, I guess, one kind of faith which is that uh, humanity will. Uh, come together to solve these problems politically. Uh, that's the sort of modern green movement, I think, and the sort of internationalist kind of movement. There's my pessimistic uh, conviction. I don't know if faith is the right word that that hmm. these things are not going to really work out, but it's just based on a sort of first premises sort of idea. And then there's this kind of faith in human ingenuity that that we've done it before and we'll get out of it again. I guess the the part that 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 gives me pause on the that is that. If you even take humanity from the Industrial Revolution on um, and say that that was an inflection point that really changes everything thereafter and we're under a different set of rules, um, maybe, but there have been civilizations that, you know, spring up, flower, are remarkable, and then face extinction level events that just push them back into darkness and it doesn't mean humanity ceases to exist, but civilizations and orders cease to exist. Um, and, you know, again, my, my sort of Slavic pessimism makes me feel that that we should at least take that as a distinct possibility. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. So, I look, in some ways, my view could be interpreted as optimistic. I actually don't think it's quite that. I mean, so I'm I'm more than happy to concede that we we won't figure it out and then but we'll then people will deal with that Adapt. and you know we'll resign ourselves to that um I, you know i just it feels to me that it's outside the scope of collective action mm-hmm. and individual agency so in some ways i'm fatalistic but i'm not sad about my fatalism i take it in stride it doesn't bother me perhaps as much as it should, and I don't know quite why, but I think that um, um, maybe some of it has to do with my belief in God. So in some sense, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to, I do believe in free will, mm. but I also believe that there's something, there's like a larger narrative out there. Um, and then... I mean, ultimately, if the world is meant to end, then I suppose it will end. Yeah. I don't know if we have a lot of control over that final outcome. Mm-hmm. 
I don't know. It's not, it's not a very well-developed idea, but I, I do think there is something there that contributes to my fatalism slash resignation. Also, I would say, um, you know, um, it's, it's hard to, it's hard to feel a sense of urgency about things that we can't make tangible. So I think this, it's also hard for me because so much, so much is, is going wrong in the world. And I think about, oh, well, you know, genocide or, um, or, um, the, the vicious repression we see, we see across the Middle East. And it's hard for me to get really worked up about a threat to human beings that is far out into the future when we can't even do anything about the the present threat to human beings in various parts of the world right now. It almost seems like a bit of a, a bit of a luxury to be able to think about climate change. And it actually is a luxury. It, there's a reason that climate activism isn't a thing, at least not on any kind of mass popular level in third world countries, because you need to have some minimal level of, um, of uh, economic success and basic sustenance to be able to get really angry about climate change and want to do something about it. So, yeah. um, and that's why um, if you look at, look at, for example, green parties throughout Europe or parties that are primarily environmental or started off that way, they do tend to cater to um, an upper middle class uh, professional demographic. I mean, that's not an accident. So I think there's something to be said for, I don't want to say like it's white privilege to be really into climate change. I mean, that would be pushing it a little bit. However, there is a certain, (laughs) however, (laughs) however, like, I don't know, like, I don't really know a lot of brown people who get really, really worked up about climate change. Again, this is anecdotal. I suppose there could be polling done on this. But in my experience, um, that is, well, that is my experience. Right. Right. Well, <laughs> so. you know, you know, it's it's um, just what you were, what you were saying earlier uh, about free will. I was really struck by your your Monday note uh, this week. Um, I thought it was really nuanced and really good. And uh, there's two comments mm. in there that you should uh, you should reply to. OK, uh, yeah, sure. Very good um, from readers. Um, but yeah, here's the, the quote that really jumped out at me. And I want to sort of push you on a little bit just to, to give people the, the, the background of it. It's about foreign policy. It's about, you know, the background of it, as I read it, was uh, Biden's trip to the Middle East. Uh, the actual background of it is you talking to some students from the Middle East uh, about your career, about Washington, about policymaking and, and things like that. And, and you recount in the essay how you um, uh, came up uh, under the shadow of uh, uh, 9-11 and the Iraq war and how uh, you were disappointed by how activism didn't affect change. Um, and that then you committed yourself to, you know, in a way, I think, you know, working within the system to try and uh, affect change. And the sentence that really jumped out at me, what I'd press you on now, is this. It says, here's me doing a dramatic, dramatic re- uh, reading as you <laughs> yes, often <please>. do. <laughs> no, no, I, I, I'm bad at that. Okay, it said, even if this had been an accurate description, and that is to say, uh, um, that that things can't change. Uh, you said, this was no way to think, live, or act. It was better to act under the impression of individual agency and free will, regardless of whether or not it was true. And, you know, 
I, what what struck me about what you were saying earlier, you were also saying, you know, um, uh, you believe in free will, um, even if you feel like some of the bigger questions are out of our the scope of what we can do, like the end of the world. Uh, you, you assign that to God. Um, but here, here, you, uh, the the way you wrote it, at least, uh, you're, you're even more tentative about it, um, about free will. Hmm. Um, so I don't know. Talk to me a little bit about about yeah, that and yeah. and how you how, unpack that essay a little bit for for listeners um, who you should all go read the essay, of course, uh, Monday note from a couple of days ago. Yeah, well, first of all, thank you. I, I actually wasn't quite sure about this piece and whether it was good enough. So I, I'm glad that you had that reaction, and we'll we'll include a, a link in the show notes if if all of you want to take a look. And maybe you'll have some interesting reactions to it. It is a pers- It is a bit more personal. I, I am reflecting on um, this encounter with students, and they asked me some pretty tough questions. And one of them was basically, America's policy in the Middle East is systemically bad, and why is there any reason to think that it will ever change? Because it's beyond individual presidents. It's been this way for 70 years. Why do you think, and you know, and I was also saying, you know, look, I work at a think tank. I get up in the morning in part because I want to believe that things can be better. But then they just kind of shot me down. They're like, well, uh, do you ha- actually have any reason to think that things can or will be better? Don't tell us what you what you wish for, or hope for. Is it actually possible? And I struggled because I actually don't know if it's possible. And there is a part of me that thinks that um, the architecture of our of our Middle East policy is precisely that. It's an architecture that has been in place for a long time. It has strong foundations, and it's very hard to. Um, bulldoze the current building or tenement and build something new. And that, and that to me is the only way it's possible. I mean, you can try to maybe add um, to, to kind of extend the metaphor a little bit, perhaps too much. Um, you can add like a roof deck or you can add like a sunroom. But if you really think the house is bad and the foundation is rotten, you got to start over. Yeah. And that's very difficult to do. Yeah. And there's a kind of also, I think, bureaucratic inertia, and there is a status quo bias in the U.S. government, like in any government or large bureaucratic structure. Once things are the way they are, it's very hard to make them other than the way they were or are. So... um, so there is a there is a kind of fatalism, and it's something I, I, I think about increasingly, in part because um, you know my my new book, which will be, which will be out in um, October, is my I think um, not to raise expectations too high, but it is my attempt to make the case in some definitive way that there is an alternative, that the U.S. can be better, and this is how it can be better, specifically in the Middle East, but also more broadly in our foreign policy. So that, that'll be my case. And people, I'll, you know, I'll be interested to see how people react to it. But um, but I don't know. Do I, 
I don't even know if I have the courage of my convictions. I mean, I believe everything I wrote in that book, but it's more, um, it, it's what I want things to be more than what I actually think they will be. Mm. But I have to do my part. I have to do what I can do. I have to put out the argument and then maybe God willing in 10, 15, 20 years, there will be a new generation of policymakers that are influenced by some of these ideas. And I don't mean like by my book specifically, but there's a group of us who believe in a different way. I mean, our side lost during the Arab Spring, but that doesn't mean our side will be defeated permanently. And it may just be the case that somehow 20 years from now, something happens and you have a specific group of individuals who are in government and they say, we're actually going to try something different in the Middle East. We're going to do it. Yeah. And we're open to new ideas on this. Yeah. So that's, I mean, it's maybe not likely, but there's no reason for me to completely give up hope that it's possible. And maybe that's, and I guess like what I said in this Monday note, um, uh, I would rather live under the impression that better things are possible, even if better things are not in fact possible. It's the yeah. only way to live. Yeah. Otherwise, like, what do you do? And I'm, I'm, I'm someone who needs to be, it's not enough for me to care. I, I love ideas. I love debating things. I love working things out in my mind. And that's a big part of what we do in this podcast and in our writing. But ultimately, I do care about outcomes. And maybe we're a little bit different in this regard that I think that in in, in some ways you've resigned yourself to certain things. Mm -hmm. And for you, it's more about working out the ideas and the love of ideas. And that can be enough for you. And you can correct me if I'm if I'm not being totally precise on that. But I don't know if that is enough for me. Right. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I think that's fair enough characterization of me. Um, let me let me ask a follow up. Um, I guess I, I, I sort of know the answer, but push you on it a little bit. Um, again, it was several episodes ago, many episodes ago when you were finishing up, I guess it was end of last year um, when you were doing a last push on the book. Um, I guess uh, you were encouraged um, by reviewers, you know, like peers and such to to actually go and, and interview people who were uh, making some of these decisions uh, in government, facing facing the problems. And you, you, you went through this. And again, we talked about it a little bit because you were in the midst of it and were, yeah. were, were struck by it. And what, what I remember uh, from that was that, you know, these are not people who were evil or not sympathetic to your uh, ideas, uh, your outcome desiderata. But... Um, if I recall correctly, a lot of the sort of stuff was like, yeah, but Shadi, like it was not possible. And to which your answer is, you know, uh, well, that's just because, you know, you, you didn't will it enough. You didn't say uh, you want to, you know, uh, build something completely different. And your metaphor just now today about architecture, you know, it's a building, you build it. But I wonder yeah. um, the extent to which, uh, you know, we talk about systems and change we we're talking about earlier on climate change uh and now and now the, the 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 question on this sort of comes up if i channel your interlocutors and i haven't read the interviews with them and how it plays into your argument but is it is it that america's foreign policy is broken or that the world 
is broken and the, the the world system sort of pushes american foreign policy into this corner i guess it, it gets down to the question of you know what is the mechanism by which ideas actually work you know um and and it's like again sort of trying to locate that that question of of system versus change you know uh and 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 what's possible and what isn't um that's that's sort of one question i'd have for you about about that that tension the other thing just listening to talk right now about democracy and about progress and change um i was thinking back to to uh basically how frank fukuyama structured his two big books um with the inflection point being uh, the French Revolution uh, between the two of them, and to a lesser extent, I think, the American Revolution. But it's basically this this uh, point where ideas, in Frank's telling, uh, ideas about human freedom, dignity, uh, liberty, burst through. And I, 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 you know, for my own reasons, I like the first book a lot better than the second one because I think it's, in a way, it's more uh, attentive and observant to uh to a, the system if you will and you know one can even admit that there's an inflection point that happens around 1789 uh but but after that in the second book he sort of assumes that the ideas have broken free and there as the world gets more and more globalized the the reach of ideas uh into the world uh is transforming the world uh in ways that no individual, you know, uh, can really help. And that has been the, the sort of driving force of, of global democratization, the rise of democracies around around the world. Um, so I don't know how, where Frank is now these days with, with sort of, you know, the rollback of democracy around the world and the sort of rise of revisionist powers and, and, and autocracies and the rest of that. But I, I, I would suspect he would make an argument, the, the optimistic argument and the role of ideas on this, that well, the ideas are out there. So your hope for democracy and, you know, uh, change and things like that may come to a certain extent because the policymakers will be there to take advantage of it, but really will come because the change will come to the societies regardless, regardless of what a set of policymakers would do. So it's an argument, I would say, that the role of ideas is not so much about what individuals in power or what the power to affect change can do, but rather that ideas transform the system, the systemic nature of the world, which then leads to the kind of progress that you're talking about. So I don't know. I guess those are my two questions for you. They're, they're, they're tied up around this question of, of, again, the role of the individual in affecting change um, and, and, and whether it is the, 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 on the part of the individual to actually affect that change. Now, obviously, individuals have to change societies. It's a long process, and you know we, we can't completely abstract the individual. It's you know it's it's one damn thing after another, and it's a, a sort of collective work of a bunch of individuals. And perhaps policymakers in power, you know, also play a, a part in that. I guess my instinct is though that 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 foreign policy and, and the way countries end up behaving are not the major motors of this change. I don't know. What do you think about that? Okay. A lot to unpack there. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah. So I did these interviews with senior um, administration officials. So that would include Biden administration, Obama, and also Bush number two, including people who were in the room with these presidents at, at key moments in Middle East policy. 
And, you know, I, I think they all knew more or less where I was coming from, but it wasn't about me trying to persuade them. I, I was doing interviews so I could have information that was useful for the book and kind of add um, nuance, flavor, and and just, you know, knowledge uh, as to what the policy process was. And um, you're exactly right that generally speaking, these are not bad people. Um, they just don't believe that certain things are possible. They don't have the same faith in American influence and power when it comes to the internal politics of Arab countries. I mean, I disagree profoundly. In fact, I mean, it's hard to overstate my disagreement in that regard, but I I don't believe they're insincere. So what I was telling this group of um, students from the Middle East on Friday last week, I was telling them that your idea of a conspiratorial American policy where they want to keep Arabs down. That's not really how it works. Um, and, you know, to illustrate the point, I'm like, well, you know, I know some of these people. I'm I'm positive that they don't wake up in the morning and think to themselves, how we can how can we make the lives of Arabs more miserable? That is simply not the way that it works. It is not malevolent in that way. There can be instances of malevolence if we look at the specifics, but in some general sense, there is not some grand design to um, to kind of put the boot on the Arab or something like that, you know? And that's an important thing to emphasize because, you know, in the Middle East, I think there is very much this sense, um, it's somewhat narcissistic, that... You know, American officials, they're always thinking about the Middle East and how to, like, mess it up. Yeah. But, you know, as it turns out, that's not the only thing American officials think about, you know. So, I mean, that's one thing um, when it comes to the question of malevolence. On, I think there's a point to be made here about how we as human beings imagine different possibilities. Because I think that as we're talking right now it's hard for me to imagine the change that I want to see. But that's because we as mere mortals have limits to our imaginative capacity. If things haven't happened, it's hard for us to um, to fashion those possibilities in our mind. Like our minds, our minds are kind of anchored to reality and what we know and what we've seen, right? So before the Arab Spring started, to my knowledge, um, almost no one predicted. I mean, there were people who were like, oh, well, this is unsustainable. And, you know, I was one of them that, you know, this cannot last forever. I mean, autocrats are inherently, you know, unstable, um, illegitimate and so forth. And then it's only a matter of time before people... Um, decide to do something about it. But no one actually predicted that it would happen this quickly in this way, certainly not in Tunisia. No one would have guessed Tunisia as the country where this would start. Yeah. So two months before the Arab Spring started, there was not a single soul, to my knowledge, that predicted an uprising in Tunisia. Sure. So if you had talked to anyone at that time, they would not have been able to conceive of this possibility. It was beyond the realm of their imagination. So I think there's a lesson there that just because something is beyond the realm of your imagination doesn't mean 
it's not possible or that it won't happen. And we have to just, and this maybe goes back to, you know, intellectual modesty. We have to be modest about what the human mind is capable of and just be aware of those constraints. And that, ha- so that, that's, that, that I think is important on, on, on the question of ideas and systems. So I, and, you know, some of my uh, counterparts in the anti- anti-woke um, movement, if you will, will not like this, but I do believe that systemic racism is a thing, and we might have different definitions of what that actually means, but I do believe that um, there are these, and by systems, I think what I mean at least is that there are a set of deeper forces at play. There's a kind of path dependence that once something is set in motion, it it is hard to undo those things. And then there is this fork in the road that, le- you know, so for example, when it comes to housing policy and redlining and how that affected um, blacks and their ability to accumulate wealth decades ago, that is something that's very hard to undo once it's set into motion. That's an architecture, if you will. And I think the language of architecture is similar to the language of systems, that um, things accumulate over time, right? So so that makes me, that just, maybe just, that just makes me realistic about how things work or don't work. I think that the ideas are important insofar as they change the minds of U.S. policymakers. So I would emphasize that for me, it's not it's not so much about the world system. It's about specific individuals who have power in the U.S. government because they're the ones who are going to have to change U.S. policy because I see U.S. policy as being very central to why the Middle East is so messed up, that we have been – not the sole actor. I don't want to. I don't want to talk here as if Arabs don't have any agency, and that Arabs are just um, pawns in some you know bigger geopolitical chessboard. But there are key moments that I identify in my book where, if things had turned out differently, so if the so the Jordanian regime to just use a some maybe a little bit of a more obscure example, there were several moments in the sixties and seventies. And actually, um, yes, it, um, but perhaps also other decades, If, um, but certainly in the 60s and 70s, where the monarchy was on its last legs, where it really seemed like they wouldn't be able to survive. And um, I should also say um, in the late 50s as well, specifically, um, because there was there was a democratically elected prime minister that the U.S. didn't like because this person was a socialist. You know, this is a recurring story in a lot of U.S. policy that it used. Now it's Islamists coming to power, and the U.S. is uncomfortable with that. During the Cold War, we didn't like it when there were free elections that led to socialists or Marxists winning, and then we opposed those outcomes. And sometimes we supported coups, so on and so forth. As as so as, case, as John Bolton has recently informed us, even even more recently than that, right? Oh yeah, that was fascinating. That was fascinating. Can you remind uh, listeners what basically what he said? Well, he was he was being interviewed by by Jake Tapper, and they were talking about January sixth, and he said, you know, uh, you know, I 
coups are very difficult to pull off. And Tapper was like, I don't know if I agree with that. I, not, I think you don't need to be that smart to pull off a coup. And Bolton then couldn't help himself. And he's like, oh, I participated in my share of setting up coups. <laughs> and let me tell you, good sir, it ain't a walk in the park. And then it turns out what he was talking about was Venezuela. Later on in the interview, he said that, that uh, you know, our support of Guaido um, uh, against Maduro um, – there was some, at least he was alleging that there was some dirty work. I've, I've been f- sort of following that with some morbid curiosity from behind, and uh, huh. I've seen some reporting okay, now. But that coup didn't, but that so-called coup did not succeed. No, it failed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and in fact, I just <laughs> so- saw I saw an article that you know he they the Trump administration tried to get the CIA involved, and they actually were just like, no, we we don't have the assets, and this is a dumb idea. <laughs> so <laughs> I, I, I'm not sure what this coup, like what the engineering of this coup, supposed coup was. Uh, was supposed to be. I think it was just like John Bolton couldn't help himself but but brag. Anyway. Wow, yeah. It's good stuff. Yeah, amazing. Really amazing. Um, so, you know, the U.S. stepped in and basically we we bailed out the monarchy when it literally had no money. Like back in the day, the, the, the GDPs of these countries was microscopically small. So the U.S., with its aid, could pretty much provide mm. a, a huge chunk of the operating budget. So their story is literally about like CIA people coming in with suitcases of cash that you know has been reported and you know documented um, in the case of in the case of Jordan at key moments. Um, so we kept the government afloat yeah. when it was um, in, at, at real threat because and. The opposition wasn't able to gain enough traction because the U.S. stepped in at those key moments. So if we hadn't done that, very likely, I think it's fair to say, the Jordanian regime, which is still here to this very day, decades later, would not have survived. That could have had a profound, that could have had a real impact on other developments in the region. Um And um, there's a number of other examples um, where the U.S., arguably played a pretty central role in in a particular outcome. So and that's the, that's the part that we as Americans can control. I mean, we can actually that can actually change in a way that is that we can perceive. When we're talking about the world system more broadly, then it becomes then it's really out of our hands. And I, I, I'm, I'd be curious what you mean by like, what are what are manifestations of this world system? I mean, ultimately, I think the case has been made that, that democracy is better than the alternatives. I think those views are sufficiently in the environment throughout the world that people can either take that or leave that. I don't know if there's a lot more to do in that regard. Right. I mean, if at, if at this point you don't believe that democracy is is good or better and you prefer dictatorship, then it's unlikely there will be any new ideological content that you can read or digest that is going to change your mind. So for example, my relatives in Egypt, they're smart enough. They've heard the different arguments. They've lived in the West or spent time in the West, many of them. They have decided that they prefer dictatorship. I don't know what I can do to change their minds on that. Yeah. And I think that that goes for a lot, you know, literally hundreds of millions of people throughout the world who do in fact think that dictatorship is preferable to democracy. Of course, their experience so I don't know. Is, is shaped by mm. by the Arab Spring and the the failures thereof, right? I mean, so much of it is. It's not purely ideas that do this, right? 
I mean, I think that the, the, the answer someone like Frank Fukuyama would give is that, okay, this generation uh, may be embittered by this, but as you said, the ideas are out there um, and can't be repressed and, and, you know, growing literacy, glowing, growing global, you know, interconnectedness and sort of coherent media space. It'll it'll be back one way or the other. That's that's what I sort of meant about the sort of Frank Fukuyama argument for it. Yeah, I sure hope so. But I actually, um, but but part of the problem is that we have an example of precisely that positive confluence of events during the Arab Spring. The media part was there that these ideas um, about democracy and fr- and you know freedom and whatever else were spreading through these different channels. And people were protesting and mobilized, and they believed in these ideas, and it seemed like it was going to work out, at yeah. least in a couple countries, and at the very least in one country, Tunisia, and that is no longer the case. Um, the the slow motion coup seems like it is solidifying as we speak, actually, the re- um, constitutional referendum that will basically ratify the coming dictatorship um, is happening Um in a few days, mm-hmm. but not to get too much into that. But I think that um, the moment was there. Yeah, everything Fukuyama might have, like in terms of okay, it's coming together. This is how change happens: ideas plus opportunity plus the system is allowing it somehow. And this is where I put a lot of blame on the Obama administration, where I think that if the Obama administration had made specific decisions differently. Egyptian democracy could have survived. Um, and I think that now, the, I, and I wrote, I wrote a piece recently about this in, in the Washington Post with a colleague, where we made the argument that the Biden administration had a chance to step in and prevent the coup in Tunisia from succeeding, that there was a final opportunity and there was a particular lever that the U.S. had, that if it really wanted to do this, it could do this. That's it for the main part of the episode. Become a paying subscriber at wisdomofcrowds.live slash subscribe to get access to the rest of this conversation, as well as the ability to participate in our subscriber-only Q&A discussions. Hope to see you in the bonus.